Just before we come to God's word this morning, let's stand for a word of prayer. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to Thee now at this stage in our service and we look to Thee for the help of Thy Spirit. We confess our need of Thee, O Lord. We are unable to take one step without Thee. We are unable to utter one word to any purpose, to any effect, without the help that would come from the Spirit of Almighty God. We pray, O God, that Thou would come now that thou would grant liberty in the preaching of the word, that as thy word is opened, that we would hear the voice of God speaking and not the voice of man, that we would see uh, the meaning of the inspired word of God and not the opinions of sinful flesh. Lord, we pray that there would be a work done in our midst, that this would not be a time of inaction, a time, O Lord, uh, when we remain passive and and unmoved but rather lord we pray that this would be a time when there would be much activity in our hearts that we would be wrought upon by thy spirit that we would be aroused and awakened and that we would be encouraged in the way O lord we pray that thou would equip us for the great task of serving thee as as the people of god that we would be lord energized and strengthened and instructed in the way that we ought to go in the service of the kingdom of Christ. That thee, O Lord, would come now and put us to work, and that thou would strengthen us, and that thou would move our hearts. Give us a burden as a people for the work of the gospel. Give us a burden, O God, for perishing souls. Help our hearts to be broken for those who are outside of Christ those who are dear to us, those, Lord, who are known to us, those, Lord, who are in our own families, in our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces, in our schoolyards, those, O Lord, who are unknown to us. Give us, Lord, hearts that go out to them, hearts that long to see them one for Christ, hearts that long to see them snatched as brands from the burning. O Lord, move us in such a way this morning, we pray. Take thy word as it is preached and apply it to the heart of every one. Give power in the preaching of the word. O Lord, that it wouldn't be the enticing words of man's wisdom. O Lord, spare us from such trivialities as that. But oh, that it would be the power and demonstration of God the Holy Ghost. That's what we crave this morning. Grant it to us, we pray. Give prevailing words, we pray. And prevail upon our hearts this morning of preacher and hearer alike. Meet with us. Tabernacle with us. Come alongside us, we pray. And pour out thy spirit in our gathering. That we might be changed. Continue with us, we ask of thee. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turn back this morning to the book of Joshua. Turning to this first chapter of Joshua. This morning, our attention is going to be specifically drawn to the verse 3 to 5. We read there, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life, as I was with Moses. So I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Last Lord's Day morning, we were standing with Joshua and the children of Israel as they had reached this solemn and momentous time in their history when Moses, the servant of the Lord, had died. But we considered that that notwithstanding, Moses, the mighty man of God, was dead, that he was but merely one instrument in the hands of God. 
We saw that God's hands are never empty, that his work never stops. Well, the book of Joshua, looked at as a whole, is a book full of action. It's a book of doing, coming as it does after the books of the law, in which much is described, much is said. The law is given, instructions are laid out clearly and meticulously. There's a sense that when we come to Joshua, we're sort of thinking, well, here we go. Now things start to heat up. Now we're going to get moving. But before we get to all the action in the book of Joshua, the Holy Spirit has seen fit to insert in this first chapter this lengthy exhortation to Joshua about the action that is to come. Here we are, as it were, chomping at the bit, ready to go. But we're being held back by the Lord as he says, No, before you go, there's something that you need to hear. We saw something of that last week. And as we come this morning, I think what we're being shown, and what Joshua was being shown by the Lord as he is detained before the Lord to receive this message, what he's being shown is this. What is about to take place in the life of the children of Israel is a big deal. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be really tough. It's going to be a difficult work. We come in these verses then this morning to this pause in the narrative. We've got this entire camp of Israel. We've got Joshua and these two million people on the eastern side of Jordan, outside the inheritance. They're ready to go, but here we have the entire camp going nowhere. And all of God's attention, as it were, is on Joshua and on these people. And he gives an exhortation to them. Now the exhortation itself is from verse 3 to 9. I had intended to look at that entire exhortation this morning, but I believe the Lord has given to us a message from these these first, the first part of this exhortation, and then his will will come to the rest of it next week. We will look at this first part then, these verses 3 to 5 this morning, under this title, Difficult Work. Difficult Work. The first thing to notice here is the extent of the work. We have it in verses 3 and 4. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even on to the great sea, or the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and on to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. Now the task facing Joshua was immense. Now Joshua, as we saw last time, he's now experienced. He's not green, he's not wet behind the ears, he, he now has a good sense of what he's about. He's been with Moses all along. He's led this people. He has led them in battle. He has defeated the enemy in battle. And he has been experienced in going along with Moses through all of those trials, all of those ups and downs in the wilderness. He's experienced. But the work that God now has for Joshua to do as the leader of this people at this point in this history it's an extensive work. It's a work that requires even an experienced man like Joshua to stop because he's never experienced anything like this before. We see the size of the task. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even on to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then on to the great sea toward the going down of the sun. Now the geography that is described here is vast geography. The language effectively draws two lines for us. One from south to north and one from east to west. The geographical area that is charted out here, it corresponds to when the promise was first made to Abraham. In Genesis 13, it was put like this in verse 14 of that chapter. God says to Abraham, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward. And eastward and westward. The idea in view is the extensiveness of the work. It's the four compass points. As far as the eye can see. 
Now, to us this morning, the country that's in view here, this country of, uh, as we know it, is the land of Canaan, of Israel, of Palestine. It's not a, a huge landmass when we think of other big countries that we now know of, like America and Russia and China and so on. But when you compare it to the size of the land of Goshen in Egypt, where this people had just come from, and when you compare it to the context here of the number of people that are involved, two million people, the task ahead really was of huge proportions. That's the point. It is a relatively huge task that Joshua is faced with. The reference here to Lebanon is to the mountainous area in the north, it's called Lebanon, which literally means whiteness, named whiteness because of the snow on the top of the mountains. The highest altitude in this land is here, in this place of Lebanon, over 10,000 feet above sea level. And then we have the sea. It's not the, the lowest altitude in the land of Palestine, but here it stands for the lowest point. From the highest mountain to the sea itself, that's the view the river Euphrates. It's the longest river and the largest river in that part of the world. Everything then in this description speaks of vastness. The height, the depth, the length, the breadth, all of it. The geography of the task is immense. We have the size of the task, but we also have the seriousness of the task. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon that have I given unto you as I said unto Moses. Now just pause for a moment and contemplate the position that Joshua is in. He is receiving here direct revelation from God. Whatever means by which it comes, it's a direct word from God to Joshua. He has the word of God. That word is ordering him to go forward. And this work is God's work. Not only that, it's covenant work. This is going right back to the beginning. It's kingdom work. It's not a work that is merely political. It's not just about finding a place to live. It's not merely about the land. It's a work that goes back, all the way back. It goes back through Abraham. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. There they are in the Garden of Eden their last moments in the Garden of Eden. It's a work that was revealed then when God said that there was going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In other words, the, the seriousness of the task that's facing Joshua is seen in this. This work is serpent-crushing work. It's gospel work that Joshua has to do. It's not merely political. It's not merely geographical. It's not a mere earthly kingdom. And Joshua knows that. It's spiritual work. Think of that phrase where it talks about the soul. Everywhere the soul of your foot shall tread upon. I don't think what we have here is a direct reference to the crushing of the serpent's head. But it certainly puts us in mind of it. It makes us think of it. We can see a resemblance. We sung it a few moments ago in Psalm 91, verse 13 in the prose. It's like this. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. What's in view here is a serious task. It's the task of the gospel. It's the crushing of the head of the serpent. It's that ongoing work of expanding the kingdom of the gospel throughout this world. This is the grand work of the history of the whole world. The great purpose, the redemptive purpose of the salvation of God's people. <clears throat> That's how serious the task is that faces Joshua. There's typology in view here, this land of promise. It was never just going to be the land of Canaan. It was always so much more than that. That was a type of what was to come. Joshua, whose name means saviour. Leading the people over the Jordan to occupy the land. Friends, that is all pointing forward to the time when the kingdom of Christ will be expanded throughout the entire world. 
the time when one called Joshua, or as it's translated through the Greek into our English, Jesus, the same name. When Jesus, the Saviour, comes to accomplish that grand work of redemption and commissions the church to go over this Jordan and to occupy the land with the gospel. The seriousness then of the work reaches its fulfilment in that great commission that Christ handed down to his church. It parallels what Joshua is being given here. All that is being said to him, it's a type of that great commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is a serious work. But notice also the precision of the task. Despite the size that we were thinking of, despite the immenseness of it, yet it is also precisely mapped out. The precision was also given to Abraham. Genesis 15. We read there, in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying unto, saying, unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. See, there's more detail being added to the promise to Abraham, what this land looks like. We see that precision repeated in Deuteronomy 11, when God confirms the promise to Moses, verse 24, every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even on to the uttermost sea shall your coast be. You see, what's in front of us here is no random catchment area. God's not saying to Joshua, let's see how you get on, Joshua. Just go for it and see how far you get. And keep going until you can go no further and then stop. Rather, what we see is that the borders have been drawn by the Lord himself. The coast of his people has been marked out with precise care. All the landmarks are there for us to be able to map it out with precision. That's a fact which is attested by those in an older time who have gone and and expeditions to the land of Palestine and have written about what they have found there and how it equates with such preciseness to what we read of in the scriptures. But let's put that in New Testament terms again. What are we being told here then? Well, what was the precise boundary that Christ marked out for his church? Because he was equally precise in the parallel, in the fulfilment of this type, when Christ was giving the instruction to arise and go over and occupy the land, what were the boundaries that he set? Well, he marked it out too with precision. This is what he said. Go ye into all the world. All the world. That for us this morning is every place where our foot shall tread. It's all the world. That is the true scope of the serpent-crushing work that this task of Joshua is pointing us to. So we see set out here in the extent of the work that's facing Joshua that he had a serious commission from God that would involve a vast geographical challenge with precise boundaries set down by God. We can see how this applies to us. We can see what this means to the church. Why it matters to us. It's not just some interesting Middle East geography and history lesson, is it? Oh, there's more to it than that. This is all about the coming of Jesus Christ to accomplish redemption for his people. To live and to die to rise again and to ascend into glory, to reign the expansion of his kingdom from glory, and then to come again, to come again and to take his people to occupy the land. That's the great commission that Christ is, in those words, echoing what was said here to Joshua. This is the extent then this morning for you and I, for the church of Christ. The seriousness of the task that we are charged with is taking the message of the gospel to perishing souls. That's what it means to occupy the land, the land of the kingdom of Christ. 
And the size of this task for us is immense. Where are we to take the gospel to, friends? Where does the gospel need to go to? It needs to go north. It needs to go south and east and west. It needs to go as far as the eye can see. It needs to go from the highest hills to the seaside villages. We need to take the gospel into all the world. But the precision in the great commission of Jesus Christ to us, rather than limiting the gospel, oh friends, it opens it up. The precise boundary is the entire world. You know, you're here today because that boundary was opened up. You're here today because the boundary of the land of Palestine was but a type of the boundary of the kingdom of Christ which includes far-flung nations of the world such as what we are in. For you then here this morning, you are to go over this Jordan. Go over this Jordan to the vast swathes of people that are in this city of Inverness and the surrounding towns and villages and areas. You face a serious challenge this morning. It's a noble challenge. It's a challenge to see that every man, that every woman, that every boy, that every girl, in, within your reach, wherever you are, wherever God has you, wherever you lift up your eyes to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west, every soul that you see, the challenge for you is that every one of them come to hear of this gospel. What a vast task is on our very doorsteps. What a challenging mission field we have. There are people all around us now. Now, this moment, there are people in their homes who have grown up and are growing up and they have no knowledge whatsoever of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Inverness, across this land, there are people who know nothing about Jesus Christ. Who have never heard the gospel. For work like this, friends, it needs every one of the people to have their shoulder to the plough. Joshua couldn't go over Jordan alone. He had to take all this people with him. And so it takes every single one of you, every one of you, from the youngest to the oldest, Every one of them, as you go about your day-to-day -day activities, doing this serpent-crushing work wherever you go. Everywhere the sole of your foot treads, everything you do, friends, is mission work. Your shopping, your job, filling your car with petrol, your family engagements, all of it, all of it is treading work. Speaking a word in season, perhaps. Witnessing to someone in the gospel. But, but certainly living out your Christian life. Living it out consistently before the world. And being ready to give an answer when they ask. Why you're so different from them. Maybe it's inviting people in to hear the gospel preached. Take it as a challenge this morning. When was the last time you invited someone in to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached in their hearing. That's a task that all of us, all of us clearly feel at. But it's not the success that Joshua was called to. It's the work. It's the work. So what an immense field. What a difficult work. But coming back then to Joshua this morning. The extent of the task, the work that was facing him was not only its difficulty, was not the only difficulty, I should say, but secondly, we see the enemies of the work. Verse 4 speaks of all the land of the Hittites. Now, to possess such a vast land would be challenging enough. But to go over Jordan and to possess such a vast land whenever it is currently occupied by this mighty, hostile people well, that is truly daunting indeed. The enemies that were faced there, they were terrifying enemies. Verse 4 speaks of all the land of the Hittites. 
Now the Hittites, the Hittites were the descendants of Heth, the second son of Canaan. And the name Heth, it means terror or fear. These are the children of terror. There are people that appear to have persisted throughout most of the history of the Israelites. They're first mentioned in the context of the promise that God uh, would give their land to Abram in Genesis 15. So by the time God was promising this land to Abraham, the Hittites already existed. They are last mentioned, at least chronologically, uh, after the exile, when the children of uh, Judah came back from exile in Babylon. And there we read of them in Ezra 9, where the people have, of God have intermarried with their daughters. So here the Hittites, they seem to be a constant presence in the history of the children of Israel. Now the Hittites are mentioned here alone, not because they were the only enemy, we know repeatedly in Scripture we're told of the seven nations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and so on. But they stand here alone because they are representative of all the other Canaanite nations. They're a representative foe. When, we, when God speaks of the Hittites, everything else is taken into account. They are both a military and moral foe and they represent all of the enemies that the people of God are going to meet. A terrifying enemy. But also, they were treacherous enemies. Verse 5 has these words, There shall not any man be able to stand before you. Now this is a promise, and we'll come to see the promise in just a moment. But within the promise comes a revelation. And the revelation is this. The occupation of this land is going to involve military conquest. The people of Israel had a fight on their hands. It's implied in the promise when he says, There shall not any man be able to stand before you. You see, the enemy is not just sitting in the sidelines jeering. They're not just poking fun at the children of Israel as they go past. They're not even just plaguing them and throwing stones at them in the way by. No, they are up in arms. They're a violent enemy. They are seeking no peace. They have no mercy. They will take no prisoners. They are enemies who are bent on the obliteration of the people of God. They don't just want to laugh at the work of the gospel. They want to stop it altogether. This idea of standing it's best understood, perhaps, when we see another couple of places where the same thought is used. It was used, the, word, the same word used, to describe Goliath. When he made that exhibition, he was coming out to challenge the Israelites, to challenge the people of God. We read in 1 Samuel seventeen sixteen, And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. He stood himself forward. 40 days. He was defying the Israelite army to defeat him. And if he was to defeat them, the cause of Israel would fall. That was his purpose. <coughs> Again, back in Deuteronomy 9, speaking of the Canaanites, Moses talks about the giants in the land. And if you remember, it was the fear of the giants that put the children of Israel off from going in the first place. That's why they spent 40 years in the wilderness. That's why that whole generation had died off. But we read there that they were a, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, Who can stand before the children of Anak? We can draw then this picture of the enemies that the people will face when they go about this serpent-crushing work. It is an enemy that wants to obliterate, not simply resist, but utterly destroy and wipe out the people of God. There's real danger then in facing these foes. They're treacherous. Lives could be lost. This work is going to involve armed combat. And the enemies that we are up against face the annihilation of the work. They're treacherous enemies. But it gets worse because they're testing enemies. By that what I mean is this. The harm that these enemies are liable to cause, it goes beyond the physical harm. It goes beyond the military. 
and it includes the moral. There's a few Hittites that we come across in the history of the children of Israel. We meet with Uriah the Hittite. He was the husband of Bathsheba. He was most likely a proselyte Jew. He was fighting on the side of the Israelites. It may not have been Uriah's fault, but we know that that family unit somehow or other managed to be the downfall almost of King David as he fell into sin with the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Over and over again we have the Hittite added. Over and over again we're brought back to see somehow or other this army of Hittites was not just a military might but a moral might. Solomon is said to have married many strange wives and among them, we're told in 1 Kings 11, among them were Hittites, wives that led him astray to worship idols. And then, as we mentioned, after the return from exile in Babylon, here we found the people almost being destroyed by intermarrying with the daughters of the Hittites. What they couldn't do by military might, they almost succeeded in doing by using sin as their weapon. We see then this enemy not only as a powerful and terrifying military force, but as a pervasive distraction and a cause of sinful stumbling to the people of God. The work then that we have ahead of us of occupying the land of promise, of filling the land with the people of God, is going to meet with firm opposition. Do we not see this today? Do we not see such vehement opposition against the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What hatred, what vitriol against the message of the love of God in Christ. The fools that we meet as we go out with the message of the gospel. We go out to say, to tell sinners that there is a Christ who died to save sinners and the fools that we meet, they're not simply there to resist. They seek the utter destruction of the church of Christ. They're beating for our blood, children of God. The enemy is even seen in the hearts of the people themselves, the people who need this gospel, resisting the offers of the gospel that they so need. We see them denying the existence of God. We see them obsessed with carnality, with the temporal, with wealth, with worldly happiness. There's a hatred towards the gospel in the hearts of those who need it the most. But there's also a hatred manifested towards the gospel in the institutions of our country. A desire to legislate against morality. Against the propagation of God's word. Against the evangelizing of poor, guilty sinners in bondage to their sin. There's a setting up of that which is evil. And there's a tearing down of that which is good. And then as if that weren't enough. There's the enemy within the camp itself. These enemies, they infiltrate the people of God. They distract them with the allure of the world, the trappings of material prosperity, the comfort of worldly relationships, the fear of man, the desire to be well thought of, the idol of respectability, and that it quashes evangelistic zeal. Oh, how embarrassing it would be if I was to invite someone to church. We might not formulate the thought in our mind, but it's there and holds us back. We become embarrassed. We become bashful. The idol of respectability holds us back. We have all these inner sins that beset us as the people of God, tempting us by the enemies all around us and in our own hearts, our own sinful flesh. What terrifying, what treacherous, what testing enemies we face in the work of the gospel. But then we see in the third place this morning, in verse 5, the encouragement to the work. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, 
nor forsake thee. You see, the work of the gospel and the work here that Joshua was being exhorted to, arise, go over this Jordan, occupy the land of Canaan. This was going to be an irresistible force. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. And we've looked at the standing already and what that means, this sense of menace with intent. An intention to destroy, but it includes also within it this sense of taking a stand, standing their ground. The promise here then is that none of the enemies of God, not any man, not a single one of them, will be able to hold their ground in the face of the irresistible force of God's army. Not one of them, not one enemy is capable of resisting God's force. Notwithstanding the difficulty of the work. Indeed we could say even because of the difficulty of the work. God gives this encouragement. No enemy is going to stand. And then he gives a reminder of past help. As I was with Moses. So will I be with thee. And the reference to Moses is really drawing attention to Everything that had happened from the time when Moses was being preserved by God's providence in that basket in the Nile. Right through all those remarkable events in Egypt, in the wilderness of Midian, all the plagues in Egypt, the great deliverance in the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, the giving of God's word in Sinai, everything that happened in that wilderness, all of it right up until this point. We are reminded again, because we do frequently forget, that the instrument is not what matters. Whether it be Moses or Joshua, whether it's David or Solomon or Gideon or Samson, the instrument is only that. It is but an instrument. What matters is that God is with the instruments that he uses. They are in God's hand. But the reminder that we have here goes further. We're now shown that in the past, God has consistently used his instruments in order to deliver victory for the cause of Christ. Think of all the past victories. Think of all the successes. Think of all of the advances. Think of how far the work has really come. Think of all the miraculous deliverances that were implemented by God through Moses. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And then he finishes this part with a promise of future victory. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. It's interesting here that the phrase, will not fail thee, it means that God will not slacken his grip. And that will be relevant when we come to the later section, God willing, next Lord's Day. It means that all along, the people under Moses' leadership have been in the protecting, the omnipotent grip of the Almighty God. And it means that that is not about to change. Not now, not ever. What a remarkable encouragement that past blessings, we've often heard that past blessings are not enough. The message here is that past blessings are tokens of future deliverances. We can live off past blessings because they fill us with faith and they strengthen our faith that as there have been past blessings, so there will be blessings to come. That's the message of God this morning. For now, what they're being brought to see is this. This work is difficult work. The work ahead is hard. The area to be covered is vast. It's a hostile land full of moral and of military enemies. But God is with them. God will stay with them. And he's not going to slacken his grip on them. Oh, for you as a church here today, as a congregation here this morning. You too are presented then with the difficulty of the work that faces you. It's hard work. 
There is no easy ride ahead. That's not how God encourages you. He doesn't draw alongside you this morning and say, don't worry about the future, it's going to be easy. Quite the opposite. He says it's going to be hard work. The occupation of the land, the occupation of our Canaan here, is the command that Christ gave to the church before his ascension. We've seen that. When he commissioned the church of Christ to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. Is this not a vast work? Is this catchment around you here? Is it not a vast area in itself? There are tens of thousands of people around here. The work facing this congregation, never mind the church at large, is a vast work. It's a daunting work. But add on to that the hostility to the gospel. The enemies of the gospel, they're actively seeking to destroy the work. There's a military-like resistance to all attempts to evangelize. The enemy, perhaps while we have been doubting, Slumbering, waiting. Whatever the reason, the enemy has managed to so advance against us that now to even evangelize is seen as an evil thing. Before, the world used to see the work of the gospel as a charitable endeavor. Now they see it as a hate crime. What have we been doing, men and women? Christianity is just about tolerated in this Christian country, but only if you keep it to yourself. Not only that, but the enemy has the habit of infiltrating the church, not only in the methods that we see being used across the wider church, but also in the worldliness that seems to not only seep in, but constantly cling to us as God's people. All the church faces a difficult work, a fearful foe. Yet, yet, God says, there shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. All their legislation won't stop us. The jeers of society won't stop us. Our own sinful hearts won't stop us in the cause of Christ. That is true encouragement. The church faces a difficult work, a fearful foe, but we've already, already this morning, we see the fruit of the promise today that there is a church here at all is because of this promise. It's not a wonder then that we're so small. The wonder is that there's any of us at all. But more than that, the victory in view here is not the victory of mere survival of the church. That's not our goal, friends. That's not the promise. The promise is not that you will just about survive, don't worry. You'll just stay alive. Like Moses' mother was thinking of when she put Moses in the river. Oh, I hope he stays alive. No. The promise here is not survival. The victory is the spread of the gospel across the face of the world. It's the saving of those for whom Christ died. It's the fullness of the Gentiles being brought in and the Jewish people being restored. That's the promised victory. Oh, and what victories there have already been. What times of reviving. What times of reform. What times of growth in the church. All times that we need to be reminded of. Not so we can be glum at how low things might seem to be in comparison. Not at all. But as tokens to us of the promised victory to come. Were there days of reviving? Then there will be days of reviving. Have there been days when the church of Christ has been reformed? Not just a reformed breakaway. Not just a walkout in protest against a lack of reform. But reformed when the entire church, a visible church is reformed. Have there been days like that? There most certainly have. There will be days again like that. That's the encouraging message of God. That's the promise of the gospel. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. We're not quite ready to get going yet with the action. 
God has more to say to Joshua. God willing, we'll look at that, as I say, next week. But as we close this morning, as we lift from our worship service this morning here in West Hill, here's the promise before us. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Amen to that. Let's stand to pray. Our gracious God and our eternal heavenly Father, we thank thee and we praise thee that we serve such a God as thy art. We thank thee that we serve a living Saviour, one Lord who rose from the dead, triumphant over death, over hell, over all the enemies of the gospel. We thank thee, O God, that before the world was created, that victory was secured. So, Lord, now we look to thee and we claim this promise of thee. We plead it before thy throne. We pray for this congregation here that it would be a congregation that would arise and go over this Jordan, that in their own backyards, as it were, there would be a witness in the gospel. There would be a conquering of the foes of the gospel of Christ. And there would be a winning of the lost souls for whom Christ died. Draw in a people to this place. Draw souls in under the sound of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And use the children of God in this congregation as instruments in thy hand to do just that. But O oh Lord use this pulpit to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as sure as the gospel goes forth, so sure we are that thy will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that the cause of Christ will succeed. And as there have been victories in the past, so there will be victories to come until that day, Lord, we plead it before thee, when Christ returns and the ultimate victory will not only be secured, but will be manifest to all generations of this world. Come then, Lord, we pray and bless us as we sing thy praise. For these things we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Our last psalm this morning is Psalm 98. Psalm 98. We'll sing from verse 1 to 6 of this psalm. So five stanzas in all. Psalm 98 from verse 1. A psalm. We'll sing a new song to the Lord. For wonders he hath done. His right hand and his holy arm him victory have won. The Lord God his salvation hath caused to be known. His justice in the heathen's sight he openly hath shown. His, he mindful of his grace and truth to Israel's house hath been. And the salvation of our God all ends of the earth have seen. There's a challenge to us this morning, friends, even from these words as we sing them. Can we say that the salvation of our God, all the ends of this area here have seen? <coughs> Let's sing these words thoughtfully. They're God's inspired words, and we sing them to his praise. <coughs>
stand as we close in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this time spent in Thy presence. We thank Thee for Thy goodness and Thy mercy to us that allows us to gather and to take Thy name upon our lips and to praise Thee and to have Thy word read and sung and preached. And Lord, we look to Thee now and we pray that Thou would sanctify Thy word to our hearts and that Thou would cause us to grow in grace for any among us who are outside of Christ that even these thoughts of the ultimate triumph of Christ on the cross of Calvary and the coming again of him as the Saviour, as the Redeemer, but also as the judge of all mankind, that, Lord, there would be a work of thy Spirit done in such hearts today that would bring them to see the Saviour as their own means, their only means of salvation from their bondage to sin. O Lord, come now then, we pray, and bless us, Help us, O Lord, to spend the remainder of this day in acts of worship, private and public, of remembering thy Sabbath day to keep it holy. And Lord, might it be a means of grace to us, everyone, as we go now to our respective homes. Take us there safely. O Lord, do good unto Zion, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.